everybody's on some sort of healthy kick, myself included, and I need to go back on the sort of the no sugar challenge. And one of which I'm having a hard time doing then is not eating the Momofuku noodles, but I am using chili crunch quite a bit. If you want something flavorful, if you're on a low carb diet, you should definitely add a lot of the pantry items from Momofuku. It gives the food that much more flavor and we've been developing it for a long time. We have a lot of different things coming out in 2024. So very excited about that. So it's not just noodles. We got a whole slew of pantry items and you can save up to 25% off the Momofuku products if you buy a bundle at shop.momofuku.com. That's shop.momofuku.com. You can also get an additional 10% off because you can stack a discount of 10% off if you use the code MOMO10 when you visit shop.momofuku.com. That's MOMO10. And if you're not close to Whole Foods, Albertsons, or a great supermarket near you, you can get this delivered to your door. And you have the full suite of Momofuku products at shop.momofuku.com. Really appreciate all of your guys' support. So yeah, we'll get on to the show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Dome Media. Thank you, Yola Tangle, as always. You have me solo. Chris Ying is not available today. And we have Yuno and Victoria in the producer's booth. We got a three things, an Ask Dave, a Dave Stradamus, and I'm going to talk about my back a little bit. Go to celebrations as a kid. Three things. Yeah, so Dave, I, I'm prompted this because the Dragon in Los Angeles' Koreatown is closing. So after 43 years in business this week, they're closing. They're going to turn into an apartment complex, actually. So uh, yeah, they're, the Dragon, for folks who don't know, is known for its uh, many banquet rooms, delicious Korean Chinese food, and affordable prefix menus. It's hosted Dojan cheese like Korean banquet celebrations and it's like a fixture in the community for the past 43 years especially the LA's uh, Korean American immigrant community so I just wanted to ask you kind of more like when you were growing up uh, what were these like kind of like banquet or celebration restaurants for you and what, what did you eat? Without even having to think about it the three places that we'd celebrate there's probably a fourth one and none of them are open anymore uh, growing up in Northern Virginia DC area number one was Da Dominico's it was an Italian restaurant Dominic's Dominic was the owner proprietor he was an Italian immigrant and he was a dishwasher with my late father in the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, they knew each other. They were like best friends. And we would go there. And that was for really fancy special occasions. And I would get the veal chop. I would get mozzarella and carrozza. And that was like my order. I love that restaurant so much. But it's no longer here. And if you grew up in that area, you know what I'm talking about. So that's when it was like a real special occasion restaurant. And that's what I thought was fine dining. It was almost like an Italian chop house to some degree. Second one is also closed. It's called Wu's Garden. It's a restaurant I've talked about a lot. Um, that's a restaurant we would go to uh, for every birthday or just about anything uh, if, if, if family members were around. And that was Shandong style Chinese food. My dad also knew that family extremely well. Uh, I mean, I probably eaten that that restaurant more than any other restaurant when I was growing up. And we'd always get the braised boneless chicken. We'd get the blue crab in um, like a gravy sauce. And we'd also get the tofu. Uh, that was also one of the origins for Chili Crunch. They had this, uh, they homemade uh, sort of chili sauce. That was one of the sort of Venn diagrams that made up the chili crunch that we have today at Momofuku. And just the kind of decor that you will never see anymore. It's just beautiful inside. And I think that is like a, a shopping mall or something now where, where it used to reside. And then Uleok, which is a restaurant that people in New York may know about. The original one burned down, but there was a, 
a location in Washington, D.C., and we'd go there all the time so my dad could eat naengmyeon at the time. I thought that was the, you know, my parents thought that was the best Korean food in the area. And that was before Annandale, Virginia started to pop off with Korean food and Vietnamese food. But we'd go down to D.C. to eat there regularly. Uh, we'd also go to Tachibana in McLean, Virginia for Japanese food. When my grandfather was alive, we'd go there a lot. Uleo Close, and now it's actually in the old Salmon Harry Steakhouse, which actually was my first restaurant job. I don't even know if that's still open, but it's not as, I think it's still pretty good. But, you know, I, I haven't been there in a while. There's another restaurant we'd go to quite a bit. Uh, but as a kid, the restaurant that I wanted to go to when it was my choice was Chesapeake Bay Seafood House. So I get hush puppies and king crab legs. That was, that was, that was it. So those are the celebrations. And, you know, it wasn't really going to Chuck E. Cheese or anything like that, but those, those would, those would be the spots for us. And later when my mom discovered Peking Duck House, which is still open in Bailey's Crossroads in Virginia, if you walk into this restaurant, it's 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 an institution. You're going to see every senator, congressman of all time, every cabinet member over the past 60 years is on the walls of this restaurant. And uh, they grow their own sort of leeks, fucking delicious. And their peking duck, which is more of a roast duck that I later found out, is tremendous. Um, so it's a classic restaurant that it's the kind of restaurant that should be sort of, um, you know, America just doesn't have it that other where other countries do where they become sort of certified and almost UNESCO heritage things where they, you can't stop operating it as it is. They're, they're sort of cultural institution that is a cultural bank uh, to some degree. So those, those would be my celebrations more than three, but you know, I feel really lucky to have, have those uh, culinary moments that I know a lot of people don't. And I wonder now, I think about this actually quite a bit, what will be the ones for my kid? Because, you know, we never, we never, we never really moved. I mean, I, I travel quite a bit throughout the Virginia area, but those would be the places we would eat. But I wonder now what would be the place for my kids? Certainly Parks Barbecue would be number one, unequivocally so, for, for, for my family. I think Providence in LA is where my wife and I celebrate birthdays. We go there like once a year. And not a celebration per se, but um, my kids think Bianca Pizza is just pizza because we eat there all the time. And I got to tell them, they're they're in for a world of hurt when they get a little bit older because <laughs> like they treat it as their canteen. So God bless the team there. But uh, those are, those are I, I would still say that's a celebration. Anytime you can get out of the house with your kids in a, in a successful way is a celebration. All right, let's take a break. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. What do we got here, you know? 
All right, we're going to ask Dave. Remember, you can always send us your questions to askdave at majordomomedia.com or our Discord users can just tag me at, you know, with questions and uh, I'll be sure to read them for a chance to be featured on the show. All right. Hi, Dave. Long time listener, first time emailer. I'm a fervent believer that many times in order to accomplish something noteworthy, you just have to be really stubborn. But sometimes that thing you're stubborn about doesn't work out. You talk a lot about failing and moving on. When do you know to kill one of your ideas and move on to the next thing? Thanks, Richard B. Richard, that's a great question. I've been listening to the audiobook, uh, Walter Isaacson's Elon Musk, because you can listen to these things on Spotify now. I could relate to some of the things, and it's hard to deny like some of the amazing accomplishments, but what is clear is the stubbornness, the narcissism, the just sort of the belief in oneself to do something extraordinary, and that comes at a, at a cost to some degree. And I, this is something I've talked a lot about and I've wrestled with a lot about, and sometimes I wonder if, if the juice is worth the squeeze. But as I get older, as I turn 47 this year, I can say that now because I'm older, right? But when I was younger and I had an idea, I didn't realize it's not just stubbornness. It is also like, it doesn't always have to be the case, but I haven't found it to be true <laughs> uh, because I, I see a lot of other people doing creative endeavors. It's a dangerous proposition because in order to do something different, you have to analyze the deficiencies in, say, the marketplace, right? Entrepreneurship or even writing a script or something. You're trying to do something that no one else is doing. So in and of itself, to identify some kind of deficiency, when I say deficiency, I also mean that you could add something of value that currently does not exist. That mere fact is extremely egotistical, right? And it's that's what I mean. It's dangerous. Like, again, I'm sure there's plethora of instances where that is not the case. I just personally have not seen it. And maybe it's because I have had my blinders on and happens all the time. But just that mere thought that you can do something better is 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 crazy, right? Number one. And by thinking that, you have an idea that leads directly into that stubbornness you're talking about. So you have the good and the bad that comes with it, right? To believe with all of your heart that you need to do something. You hear all the success stories. You see documentaries or, you know, based on true story movies and TV series about people that have been successful with their ideas. Nobody talks about the blind failures that happen along the way. And I don't know what it is, but clearly the failures way, way, way outnumber the success stories. And that's something to keep in mind. And that's, that's why I think it's a really dangerous proposition to have an idea, to be selfish enough and stubborn enough to constantly feed that idea. And I can't tell you to not do it because every single thing that has progressed society oftentimes for the better has happened because of this egotistical fucking point of view. And at some point you got to realize it's not going to work, whether that's financial or whether that's negative criticism or whatever. Right? So this isn't a hard and fast rule, but I think part of it is realizing it's just a bad idea. Maybe the timing's wrong. I can tell you still now, I still think that if I open up Sambar again, that original idea would work. Why do I think that way? A lot of that is hubris. A lot of that is my own fucking ego and narcissism. But the other thing is, I just have this blind belief that if I did it all over again, it would be different and it would be better. That is stubbornness. But it's also hard-headedness. And it's also something where it's taken me some time for everyone to say, that's a bad idea. And the reason I can't give you a concrete, clear, black and white answer is sometimes when people tell me it's a bad idea, I have to ask myself, is it really a bad idea? And this is the sort of the other phrase of that. So I learned along the way, 
where if I, because I'm one of the most stubborn assholes anyone's ever met, I've learned that if it's just my gut and I have no data to show for it, right? Then maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just wrong. And I've taken a lot of big bets. Like we created the first, what is now known as a ghost kitchen ever because I knew it was going to happen. And I sound crazy and full of myself saying that, but I was fucking right. We were wrong on the timing. We could have executed things here or there better, but you know, it got acquired, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is I felt so passionate about that. And the reason I felt passionate about that is we could fix the economic model before we got in the problems that we are in today with delivery services and restaurants and surcharges. If the restaurants actually collectively owned it together, we could do something in strength in numbers per se. So like I wanted to do that. And I had data to prove that it was going to work, right? So part of me is, do you have enough data to make an educated guess that what you believe in theoretically could happen, right? And what are the the variables that and the mechanisms needed to make that variable become a reality, right? All of those ideas that you have a reality. So that over time turned from me just believing I have to fucking do it to realizing, oh, it's just me being stupid and being selfish and me being an asshole to then realizing, and then you get down on yourself. And then I sort of sift through these bad ideas over and over and over again. And where I'm at now on that stubbornness is you need to have that stubbornness. And where I think it's the killing your darling moment is either twofold. Your timing is wrong on the idea. Number one, which means you still are right on the idea, but if you're fucking wrong on the timing, you're still fucking wrong. Secondly, it's the execution of the idea, right? Everyone's got a fucking great idea, but it's the execution. It's also very similar to the idea that, you know, anyone can identify the problem. It's the fucking very, very rare few that can actually fix the fucking problem, right? So that to me is logically sort of the same thing of executing your idea. It's so hard to execute it well. And a lot of people may have the same idea, but currently where we're at right now, everyone has the same idea. Now it's about who can execute it fucking better. And I think that leads me to the last part is where I really sort of become super fucking stubborn on idea and I won't move or budge. Even in the the case of everyone saying, uh, the face of everyone saying, you're, you're, you're an idiot, this is a bad fucking idea, is if data is on, it's not just data is on my side, it's, that's one end. I, let me just parse this out a little bit. The cultural end, right? Is it a bad idea because somebody said it's a bad idea with no data themselves and it became sort of a cultural truth? Or is it actually a bad idea, right? And again, I always use MSG as an example of, well, I've been stubborn as all hell to be on this crusade to fucking normalize MSG because of all the racism involved. A lot of people have said, you're a fucking idiot. You're so stupid. You're so stubborn on this. But I'm like, how can I not be? The science is on my fucking side. And the alternative is living in a world where the fucking food media is perpetuating racist stereotypes. So then I have no choice but to be extremely fucking stubborn and be on the right side of history. So to me, those are the points where you have to fucking fight tooth and nail to believe in something. And it doesn't always have to be that. There might be ideas. Like when we opened up Momofuku, it was like, well, there's not a really great affordable cooking with some of the modern techniques. So like you have this idea And even though it's wrong, you have to prove people wrong. And everyone says it's a bad idea. If you yourself believe in it, you sort of have to go full in on it, like fully commit yourself to that idea. And that's what I mean. It can also be scary because I can tell you there are hundreds of examples where if I made a left turn instead of a right turn, metaphorically speaking, in running that business, we wouldn't be here today. So I think a lot of it's luck, a lot of it's randomness. And I cannot tell you that, you know, it's time to kill your darlings because sometimes killing your darlings means I'm just going to shelve this and I'll revisit it later. The last thing I'll say about this is 
as you talk about failing. And I use this example a lot for myself. When you fail, it's not a failure. And I always sort of picture this. Your idea and who you are when you commit yourself to this idea is you're like porcelain, right? You're like this delicate vase. And when you fail, you shatter yourself into a thousand fucking pieces, right? Do you have the grit, determination, and luck, quite frankly, to piece yourself back together just to break yourself all over again, time and time and time again? And it's that grit and determination that turns that stubborn idea into something that is actually fucking amazing. And that, you know, for better or worse, is what I saw in Elon Musk, right? So it's not a hard and fast rule. And for all the good that can come out of that stubbornness, there's way more fucking bad too, right? So that's why a lot of people don't do it. And I think if you're in that situation, you really have to ask yourself, do I have enough data? Do I have enough evidence to back my stance? Because if you don't, then it's just fucking ego. And I think you got to kill, not just kill your darling. You just got to do something fucking else. All right. What do we we got here? Let's take a break. Last year, I made fun of people that believe in ghosts and the Zodiac and all that shit. And um, I had some people over at my house. There were nine adults in total. (laughs) I don't know how we got in this conversation. But I was the only one that didn't believe in ghosts, the paranormal reincarnation. (laughs) And I said to myself, if I was in New York, would this be the same case? I don't know. I think, I don't know. But it sort of bummed me out. (laughs) But it also didn't. Like my faith in science, even though I don't even understand the technical aspects of a lot of the science that I trust, is the same belief that my friends that were with me believe in all this other stuff. And it's no different than, say, religion. And I've had a long, at times, acrimonious history with Christianity and religion itself. And I have to say that as long as it doesn't infringe on other people and create radicalism at any point, I'm okay with it because life is too fucking Hobbesian, right? It's too short. It's fucking brutal. And it's goddamn hard to not have something faith oriented or a belief in something other than yourself. And there was a conversation about if you die, your consciousness goes somewhere else. And I was with very, I I think very smart people. I just, I don't believe it. I think that if you die, you turn off like a TV set, you know? And listen, reincarnation, I, I, like we're all stardust, right? If I die, I'm going to turn into something else. My atoms be repurposed for something else. So I believe in reincarnation, reincarnation in that way. In, in terms of Hindu and, the, and Buddhism, I think reincarnation as a philosophy is fucking beautiful. I love it. But I don't believe in it as a scientific theory, right? I have a lot of philosophical learnings and things that I have absorbed over the years from Buddhism that I admire quite a bit, but it's not something that I, I I listen to a hard and fast rule because, you know, it's like, I just, I just choose not to believe in it. Right. Because it's, there's no evidence. There's no science. Uh, I'm a doubting Thomas when, in regards to all this, I just find it to be amazing that there's not more skeptics out there when it regard, when it comes to this stuff. So, I was just, uh, I didn't realize that I was going to be the joke and the minority in this conversation. Everyone was laughing at me, and I just couldn't fucking believe it, that I trusted science, reason, and logic, and uh, I was the fucking Looney Tune. So I thought that was fucking crazy. What's so funny, you know? This is amazing. Like, it's just kind of like you're being kind of gaslit into, like, 
hey, you're on the ba- you're on the wrong end of this thing. You're on the wrong end of history, according to these nine people, Dave. Like they're probably looking at you like you and your phony science and your and your bullshit like theories of physics and and biology. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can't have answers for, right? I get that. But my faith is in total randomness, right? In the the giant scope of things and the infinite possibilities of the universe. That's what I, I think it's just safe for me. My faith in that is what gives me calm, just as much as someone else that believes in fucking, you know, the supernatural, (laughs) which I find fucking ridiculous to believe in. I, I get it, you know? So I don't know. It's always dicey when it's like, you you get the sense that these narratives that I think you have the core narrative down, right? It's like this idea of something unknowable, something beyond me. But then when you start packaging it into these, you know, um, different ways of explaining it, let's let's take astrology because it's easy to beat up on astrology, right? Like, um, and it gives you a semblance of control because you control the language you're using to describe it. You're controlling the way that you understand it. Like, it gives you a semblance of a feeling of control over something that is. Literally uncontrollable, unknowable, right? Like, so I think it's more of like that, just trying to couch it in terms that you can understand. You start to become like part of a club that like everybody else kind of sees the same thing and we just start talking about it. But I I think it's really about seizing control from that, that thing that we fear, which is the thing that we don't know. You know, the thing that is just out there. I just need evidence. Show me fucking evidence. Show me. Show me. When I say I believe in aliens, I'm not saying a fucking spaceship. I believe that there's life outside this fucking planet. You know? Show me fucking evidence. Just anybody show me fucking evidence. You know? Capture a ghost. Show me that it's not some kind of anomaly, a natural phenomenon. Oh, for sure. We need to bring like a ghost hunter in here to talk to you. No, please don't. Please don't. (laughs) I just, I, I, I... I'm learning to be more tolerant of opinions that I find to be completely unacceptable. (laughs) Oh, God. Another thing. I'm seeing caviar fried chicken all over social media. And I got to say, there's a lot of feelings, but Simon Kim, uh, a friend of mine, opened up Kokodak, and there's some Momo teams that are are there on that team. And it's doing crazy. It just opened up. So go check it out. He's got Kut Steakhouse as well. And, you know, I... I want people to do that. It's weird though to be part of something like we 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 launched caviar fried chicken. I don't know, like seventeen years ago. And the only reason we did that is because I saw Wiley Dufresne at WD fifty pairing caviar and fried chicken first. And I don't think it was done. He had a dish with it. I don't. I think it was trout roe at first. And I poured over my cookbooks and everything possible. And I was like really shocked to see that. Chicken, particularly chicken breast, had never been paired with caviar, ever, and to my knowledge. And I'm sure that it has, but I did not have evidence of it. And when I thought about it, I was like, oh, caviar and fried chicken is literally the same ingredients as caviar and a blini, or the traditional caviar Russian service with egg yolks, egg whites, you know, a, 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 a blini or a crepe, onion scallions. I was like, oh, it's the same. So we did it and it went over really well. And it took some time and there's something perverse about that relationship. But it's strange now that, and this is why I'm like, oh, not just okay with it. I just like, no one fucking cares about the history of this. No one fucking cares. And old me probably would have cared, but older me is like, doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter. And 
if people want to enjoy it that way, great. You know, I think Sean Gray, uh, when he was, when Co was there, took that to a completely different level with cold fried chicken and the, and the caviar. It was fucking awesome. But if more people want to enjoy it, fantastic. I have no problem with that because I love that combination. And it just dawned on me that fried chicken and caviar is, is now going to be something that was, people would be like, what? And now is now a meme. You know, it's now acceptable. And you see it a lot more. And I've seen it on so many fucking restaurants now. Caviar and fried chicken in some kind of variation, in some kind of combo. And then it dawned on me, everything has been done by somebody else, right? So I, I, it's, it's, it's more of like, well, I feel great to be part of this journey, right? And all praise to Wiley Dufresne, who doesn't get enough fucking credit for all the shit that he pioneered and influenced me. And to see this idea at the time really be novel and new. And again, for anybody that's being hypercritical, maybe it existed elsewhere. But at the time, there was no social media. There was no way to connect the world. So it didn't really fucking exist. And I have a lot of fucking cookbooks. I never saw anything like that. And now to see it on so many menus, not every menu, but it is now a combination you see everywhere. I think it to me, it's less about claiming territory and being excited that this has become this thing. I didn't invent it. I just put it together in a different way, me and a bunch of people. And now it's now out there in the world. It's so crazy to think about. So I got some inbounds and I'm like, no, it's good. I can't wait to check out Coco Doc. I think it's going to be cool. Really excited to see what he's done for Korean food and that whole uh, hospitality group. Changing the way people thought about Korean barbecue, changing the way people think about Korean fried chicken. And I think they're giving like a Prilla cold noodle soup. You know what I mean? Like, Maybe that is the best way to introduce that next level of education to Korean food to a larger audience. So excited for Simon and the whole team there. But, you know, it's just interesting that everything, whether you're making a lasagna, whether you're making meatballs, whether you're making gyoza or whatever, it all started with somebody doing it and then being unleashed to the world. And it's exciting to me that it's now part of something. And that's all I wanted to say about that. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit-free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit-free. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. When we were, were, were testing something out and uh, I made a reference to one of the guests uh, that we were filming something, and that a dish that I was making, which was a salmon rice, was in reference to two great famous chefs. One is the Trois Gros brothers. Claude and Pierre made 
arguably the greatest dish in modern Western history, which was the scallop of salmon with sorrel sauce. And in a lot of ways, it's not wrong to say that Restaurant Tuago created plating as we know it today because beforehand it was all Russian service. And this sort of going back to caviar and fried chicken, it was like, I'm proud of the fact that like I'm influenced by something and I don't have to tell anybody about it. And the other thing is Passard made this, Alain Passard makes, makes this Vinjan sauce. It's a wine from the Jura region and he boils it down with shrimp or some kind of crustaceans or whatever. Usually it's shrimp and shrimp heads. And then he makes like a bermonte out of it and adds some aromatics, sometimes it's ginger, sometimes it's something else. And it's a fucking delicious sauce when it's mounted with butter and sometimes you might add some cream. So I have these two sort of different dishes and I'm trying to explain it to somebody that has no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. So there's a good chance that you might, you know, hear me talk about something. And I'm trying to explain it. And I don't know how to explain that this dish, if you don't know anything about food, you're probably never going to eat this dish, the salmon and sorrel sauce at that restaurant. It's also so old that you're not going to see that restaurant, that dish on any menu. In fact, any kind of butter sauce is so not in vogue, which is like, Bourblanc sauce to me is like fucking the best. So I'm just sort of talking out loud here, but it's just interesting to me that there's a dish that I revere so much and somebody else that's eating it has no fucking care in the world about what the fuck I'm talking about. And I can't tell you if that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? I just don't know. So this is not about an answer. This is just me talking out loud. But I will say that if you are a cook today and you wear chef whites and you work in a kitchen that tries to be ambitious and you're using techniques, you should know the history of your fucking food. You should know that that dish is on the pantheon of most important dishes of all fucking time. So if you're a younger cook and you're listening to this, do your fucking homework. You have access to the internet. You can find so much information about this dish. So I'm okay with somebody that's just a diner and not knowing anything about this dish. I'm not even talking about an esoteric sauce from Arpege, a restaurant in Paris. I'm talking about one of the most important dishes of all time. I'm okay I'm just basically saying, who should know this fucking information? If you're an average diner, absolutely not. If you're a gourmand, you most likely will because you probably have gone to that restaurant and tried it. But if you're a fucking cook, you better fucking know this shit. So that's all I'll say about that. What else we got? All right, Dave. And you kind of, this kind of transitions in uh, to the Deistradamus where I'm asking you about. So one of my favorite observations you made last year uh, was the tendency of people's eating preferences to tend toward comfort. And I had some questions about how you think this will reshape fine dining into the future. I, I reread an article you wrote uh, in 2016 for Wired. So it's been eight years since you wrote about the unifying theory of deliciousness. Right? And you basically in it talk about, you know, it's that you brought it, you actually brought it up in the last episode where it's like, it's just bland enough to where, you know, you keep eating it, but it seems a little overseasoned and it just keeps it just keeps it going on in a loop. And in order to fully appreciate that, you have to kind of take in the moment and kind of step back and see the systems at play. That's that's something that you wrote in that article. And these days people don't seem to be thinking at the table anymore. Even in fine dining, it just seems like something that's like, you know, the caviar this and wagyu that and and then there's not really a lot of like considering what you're eating. And you know, given that, and do you think that's going to continue and do you think that people will like that there needs to be some edits to this unifying theory of deliciousness or do you think that it'll always be a thing and people just need to uncover it? Well, that's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about and a lot of this can be I'm going to say self-referential, but just you can sound like an asshole talking about food this way. So I just want to preface it that way number 1. 
But in terms of the boredom of food that we're at, it's not always the case. I think you're seeing innovation in different ways, but it may not be the white tablecloth restaurants that people associate innovation where it normally comes from. But I will say that most of that responsibility comes on the chef's end, but there's a lot of things involved. The real estate, rising costs, the punishing nature of making mistakes, right? You just don't have the time. I, I always think about Ferran Adria at LBE. He made mistakes for nine years before anyone gave a shit. You need the time to fuck up. And you need the the financial resources to fuck up, which is why it's probably a good idea to try a restaurant in a place that is not so punishing financially in a location. But I would say a good dose of the other responsibilities on the fucking food media. And I think a lot of that was shaped by, at least in America, the inability for them to do their homework and to appreciate anything that was new or challenge the conventional norms of what eating is. And I do think that one reason why they didn't do it is because they were not experts on it. They did not understand it, and they may have a better understanding of it now, but they, frankly, they just didn't do the fucking homework. And I don't think they understood that when they make a decision, it's like a butterfly effect. The repercussions are fucking massive. And I think all the way going back to, say, like Frank Bruni, he was re reviewing a restaurant called Varietals, a restaurant that Jordan Kahn used to work at. It was in Chelsea, and it was avant-garde, and a lot of it was regurgitated modern Spanish stuff at the time. And it wasn't... Didn't win a lot of people over, but a lot of people criticized it because of the modern nature of it all. And instead of asking, okay, a lot of it could be redundant, but a lot of people didn't even know what was redundant at the time. They just immediately were allergic to the idea. And that's one of many restaurants that could have been embraced. And I do think that, I think about that A.O. Scott article a lot, and what he said was maybe his opportunity as a film critic was to embrace something that is awesome, is truthful, is fascinating, and he uses his platform to sort of share that with his audience that trusts him on all these other movies and thereby sort of like changing the movie going experience. I think that, and I don't think it's a critic's fault. I don't think that anyone understood the, the amplification of social media and online media. There's just no way to do that. But if we could go back in time and course correct, there's a lot of things I would have liked to have course corrected clearly. But in terms of embracing anything that was modern and new. It doesn't have to be modern gastronomy, aka molecular gastronomy. It was anything that is different than the norm. And I can pinpoint a lot of these things to just the inability to embrace something new. And whether you like the food or not, I think that if we embrace the fact that people are trying to do something new and giving them a longer leash than, say, somebody that's just opening up another fucking Italian restaurant, I think we're going to be in a very different place today. I really do genuinely believe that. And again, all you have to do is read the very first review of WD-50 and then the second review of WD-50 and to realize, and it's not just the New York Times, it was Jonathan Gold totally fucked that review up too. You know, at the time he was reviewing for Gourmet Magazine, it was a fuck, if, if Jay Gold didn't get it, you know, that just tells you, right, how much we missed the fucking mark. And especially when I localize this in New York, New York could theoretically, again, I can't prove it. I have no data. Just my gut tells me that we would be in a different place dining wise. And I think that has something to do with the lack of innovation. And I want, when I mean lack of innovation, there's just like nothing new. But I also think that we're, wrench, we're, we're sort of in this postmodern world where we're reaching a place where there's, it's just a lot of it is self-referential. It's, it's regurgitating things that have already been done over and over and over again. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's how we can become a more mature dining culture, much like Japan, right? Culinary education awareness is higher than ever before. So you're not going to find those groundbreaking dishes anymore. That's just not going to happen. And if anything is discovered, 
that's a big difference. New is different than being discovered, right? Because anything that was discovered may already have been the case, but it just never got the light it deserved before, right? I think that's an important distinction. But when it comes to food, I just don't know if people want to necessarily be challenged in that regard. And this has almost nothing to do with that article in Wired, which I'm extremely proud of. And that goes all the way back. And that article talks about this logic course that I took, Advanced Logic, under Howard DeLong, that he wrote a book that was crucial to Douglas Hofstadter writing Gerald Escher Bach. Very difficult book. And I don't think I'm the right person to explain any of it. But what I gathered from that was, and it became instrumental in how I think about dishes, what Hofstadter calls strange loops or contradictions or paradoxes, uh, what Kurt I, again, I'm not going to talk about <laughs> incompleteness theorem today, but the idea when you have something that is a contradiction, something that doesn't make sense without me being able to describe it well, when you have something that's that, that literally is almost alive in your head in terms of a dish. So when I think about salt, I've used this example many, many times, the perfect amount of salt in a dish, right? Is one where you taste something and you think about it, you think about it really fucking hard. And you're like, yeah, I think that's fucking overseas. And I think that's too much salt. And as you think about it more and more, you're like, no, actually it's, it's not enough salt. And you oscillate. You can literally go on forever thinking about, well, it's too salty. No, it's not salty enough. Too salty, not. That act, that, that simple act of going back and oscillating is a fucking amazing moment. And again, I, it's hard for me to describe this because it gets into some crazy territories. That to me is a, a fucking amazing mo- moment for somebody, right? Because food and taste become like alive to some degree, right? It, it's, it's almost like animated to some degree. You're not going to find those moments too often. And if you can get a dish that gets to that point, right, it's a good thing. And what I mean by that is if you have everything easy and everything comforting and everything fucking copacetic, it over-indexes to just where we possibly might be at today. You need to temper delicious things with bitterness, with sour, with sweetness, That balance is not 50% salt, 50% sugar, or, you know, it's literally 100% oversalted and 100% undersalted simultaneously. And if you can reach that point, again, hard to describe, you might stumble on a completely different way of making a dish that I am fascinated with, but you can't do it with just aggregating the best of the best of the best of the best of the best, right? You need to have something that might be discomforting. You need to have something that may not feel right in a dish. And that could be the aesthetics of the dish. That could be the taste of the dish. That could be the texture of a dish, which is why I'm so drawn when a dish has textural contrast, soft and hard, temperature contrast, hot and cold, and also the palate. It's it's a little bit of everything, right? Salty, sweet, sour, bitter, umami, sweet. That, that to me is very difficult to do. And you can see that in other parts of culture, right? And that's where sort of Gerdel Escherbach's book comes in and says you can find that paradox in music. You can find that in visual arts, music being box fugues, Gerdel Escherbach's paradoxical drawings of hand drawing the hand. So you can, if you can hear it, you can see it. I believe that you can also taste it. And that's sort of what the that essay was about. And in another life, maybe I would have been a grad student to write a dissertation that nobody would have fucking ever read. And I am just for the record, the furthest person in the world that should ever be talking about this stuff. I just never thought I'd be in a position to do it. And I was able to sort of like use this as a guiding principle to how I wanted dishes, not all the dishes. You can't make every dish like this, but when you can taste something and it fucking like makes you conscious of something in a way that you weren't before, to me, that's fucking cool as shit, right? 
So, and it doesn't have to be salty. It's sweet. It's like, mm, is that too sweet? No, that's not, that's not sweet enough. Right. Is that spicy enough? That's, that's, you know, I was just thinking of your wasabi peas at Major Domo. It's like, is it too spicy? Oh, it's grassy. No, it's, it's spicy. No, it's this. And then just like, oh, yeah, it doesn't have it. to be a complex dish. It could be something uber fucking simple. And what you know is referring to is a dish that I made a long time ago at the farmer's market, sugar snap peas. This is the first year when we're really like trying to figure out what the fuck we're going to do to stay in business. And before that, like I hated the fact that at the time I would see wasabi mashed potatoes in the late nineties on menus everywhere. Wasabi mashed potatoes was omni-fucking-present. You may not think so because it doesn't really exist today. But wasabi mashed potatoes was fucking everywhere. And what wasabi mashed potatoes really is, is horseradish, dyed green. And I think people like the color. People like the fucking, the spiciness of it all. And again, I remember being at John George and having his wasabi peanuts at the bar at the nougatine room. And I was tasting that. And I was like, oh, this is, this is delicious. It's texture. It's crunchy. Why do people like wasabi? It's just the right amount of heat. So I just sort of connect the dots. And why don't I just add in lemon juice, quickly saute sugar snap peas? Because if you cook it too long, it gets fucking slimy and shitty. And if I grate really nice fresh horseradish on it, it's a fresh version of wasabi peas. But it's not wasabi because I'm using horseradish. But the point was, it wasn't even about the sugar snap peas. I think what made that a memorable dish, because we have a much better version of that now, because we don't even cook the sugar snap peas, really, because it's so good, the sugar snap peas with a major domo, is just adding enough horseradish where people are like, ah, man, that's too spicy. And in fact, that spice level is something we try to pursue on our chili crunch, the fuku chicken sandwich. It's If you ask me the right amount of spice for the chili crunch, for example, this is a lot of work that went into this. I want it to be spicy for people that don't like spice but not spicy at all for people that eat spicy food. So you can aggregate it to some degree. You can sort of zoom out where it's not just the flavor of what you're tasting yourself, but you can sort of empathize and try to taste what it might be for a whole group of people. Because that logic, again, without sounding crazy person, is sort of the same to me. So I want people to have a conversation. That's not spicy. No, that's very spicy. Now, all of a sudden, you have something that was an inanimate dish sparking an animated conversation. I love that. And that's when you have not just debate, like healthy debates about something. It's like, that's too spicy. No, that's not spicy enough. Then that can be, I really like that dish. I don't like that dish at all. Or it could be a restaurant. I love, 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 love Vespertine. Another person, I fucking hate it. I think that is extremely important to have these conversations. You can't have a restaurant for everybody, right? And if you can do that, we need more of that. That's all I'm trying to say. And apologies if I talked out of my ass, but again, sometimes as I get older, I, I don't have a, a, a mastery of some of the concepts that I used to have because all I think about now is feeding my kids <laughs> and getting them to fucking school. For someone to understand outside of food, the current food landscape is very similar to the superhero domination of the cinema industry right now, right? And all of the sequels to it. I love it. But when that dominates the conversation and all the marketing and all the money and all the budget goes to that, at what cost do you have, right? Do I want to watch Zone of Interest right now? Absolutely, I don't. Do I want to watch Flowers on the Killing Moon? No, I don't. I really don't. Do I want to watch Maestro? No, fuck no. I really don't. But like, 
you almost have to force yourself to watch something or read something or listen to something that is not in your comfort zone because it puts things into perspective. And all of a sudden, you have a different viewpoint. You can have a conversation about something. You can have a conversation as I've had, even though I haven't watched Maestro, I can imagine, I fucking hate that movie. I really love that movie. When you have too much consensus, that scares the shit out of me. And when making a dish, I always go fucking batshit crazy when everyone's like, that's great. Oh, that's fucking amazing. I love that. Everyone loves that. I'm like, no, 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 no. We need to spend the equal amount of time, even if we all fucking love it, to really be critical here and to imagine somebody that hates this fucking dish. Or, hey, it's a great restaurant, which is why, again, I, I think thinking about this, I think Keith Lee is the most important food critic today. Not that he's rec- covering all the restaurants that the publications talk about. It's like, it's, it's a different point of view. So, you know, I think this is super important to have a variety of viewpoints where you can have a conversation about something and, you know, not having consensus is fucking crucial, right? For the, the creator and the diner. So you just have to sort of like go out there and do it. And that, I think that's the hardest part. So it's really hard to go against the status quo. It's really hard to go against convention. And I understand why one wouldn't, right? But you know, if you're talking to me about sort of the state of affairs and dining, we're headed towards that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that considering the pandemic. But, you know, if you really want me to go fucking nuts here and sound crazy and I'm just going to stop after this, <laughs> you know, I'm going to lose everyone right now. A lot of people, a lot of youngsters, I, particularly younger male, males, read Nietzsche in like high school and college and they're like, oh, this guy's a fucking genius. And then you get a little bit older, you live some life and you're like, what a fucking asshole. And then you might discover him again and be like, oh, I live like, I understand it a little bit more. And I remember having to read The Birth of Tragedy and Philosophy 101 and be like, fucking, this sucks. I don't understand anything. And now I've reread parts of it. And I think, and we've talked about this before, bits and pieces over the years. In some degree, maybe there's something right about what Nietzsche was saying with ancient Greece, where it veered away from the Dionysian into only the Apollinian. And I'll leave it at that. And you know, he's shaking his head. You need that balance. Anyway, that's it. Something to ponder. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, let's let, let, let's get out of here. Give us five stars. Make sure to check out the next episode of Chrissy and Dave Dine Out on Freeform and streams the next day on Hulu. Give us five stars. <laughs>